Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the music from the film Lincoln, made in 2012. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. If you were to make an autobiographical movie of President Abraham Lincoln, how much of his life would you include? It's very tough to try and make a compelling film about someone who made such a major mark on American politics and society as a whole. And Steven Spielberg wisely waited until he found the right topic for examination to make what might turn out to be the ultimate film about Lincoln, appropriately titled Lincoln. The heavy task of making a biopic about an American president is why there have been very, very few good ones. There was Nixon, which featured John Williams's Oscar-nominated music in 1995. Ron Howard delivered a film about Nixon's post-presidency and Frost-Nixon in 2008 with Frank Langella's Oscar-nominated performance. And there was a decent movie about JFK called 13 Days about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oliver Stone's W about George W. Bush is better left unmentioned. But there was a better portrayal of George W. Bush in Vice, played by Sam Rockwell in an Oscar-nominated performance. Another movie I don't really want to mention is Pearl Harbor, with John Voight playing FDR with some historical inaccuracies. Bill Murray tried, but failed, to put a lighter spin on FDR with the film Hyde Park on Hudson. And I've never seen Kenneth Branagh's spin on FDR in the movie Warm Springs, but he was nominated for an Emmy. I really like the HBO miniseries John Adams, which featured a lot of current and future presidents in the show. Abraham Lincoln has been the most portrayed president on film, 34 times as of 2020, according to Wikipedia, with Joseph Hennaberry playing him first in The Birth of a Nation in 1915. Future Oscar winners Walter Houston would play him in 1930 and Henry Fonda in 1939. Most of Lincoln's portrayals on film, though, have been fictional, such as Benjamin Walker in Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. So looking at that list of previous presidential performances, it's easy to see why it took 13 years to get Lincoln made. And it only happened because Spielberg learned that Doris Kearns Goodwin was writing a book about Abraham Lincoln. The movie going public never rushed out to see presidential biopics, so Spielberg's movie had to be good. The book would cover his bid for election in 1860 and how he assembled his cabinet with men who had run against him for the presidency. I have read parts of the book, and it is fascinating, and really gets deep into the 1860 Republican nomination for president. Less than half the book deals with Lincoln's attempt to get the 13th Amendment approved by the House of Representatives, 
but it was this plot line that hooked award-winning playwright Tony Kushner. After other screenwriters had failed to deliver a streamlined script, Kushner focused on the 13th Amendment story, which was to end slavery in the United States and end the Civil War. What we get is an examination of the workings of two of the branches of government, working in tandem and often in opposition, to move the country forward. I was amazed at the lesson it was teaching about the ideals of the Republican and Democratic parties at the time. The Republicans were strongly in favor of the 13th Amendment, while the Democrats viewed slaves as inferior. Don't worry, I'm not going to pontificate about the state of affairs in the 21st century, but it is clear that both parties seemed to switch ideology sometime after this amendment was passed and ratified. That seems to be a point Spielberg and Kushner are making between the lines here. The movie almost didn't get made. Studios were afraid to partner with DreamWorks and Spielberg on another Civil War-era drama since Amistad did not follow through on its ambitions to be a Best Picture contender. Plus, Amistad barely made back its production costs. But once Spielberg gathered his crew and his actors, confidence grew and he got 20th Century Fox to pitch in. Touchstone Pictures was in a deal with Spielberg to release his movies domestically, and they agreed to continue that with Lincoln. This is probably one of the most dialogue-heavy films Spielberg has directed. It required him, I'm sure, to exercise some restraint in how it was filmed, edited, and acted. And with an actor such as Daniel Day-Lewis playing Lincoln, there really isn't much you need to do as a director. Everything was painstakingly recreated to look like the House of Representatives in 1865, and the rooms in the White House were built on sound stages almost exactly as they looked at the time. But this movie belongs to the actors, which probably would be a tough thing for a film composer to accept. John Williams, though, he knows his role as a composer, and he doesn't overstep his bounds in this movie, using as much restraint as Spielberg does. John and I were here to guide and support this story, but not to make our voices heard above Lincoln's, Spielberg wrote for the soundtrack CD. This project came at a special time for Williams. He had celebrated his 80th birthday on February 8, 2012, and showed no signs of stopping. In addition to his work on Lincoln, he had a few other projects in the works in 2012 that I will mention later. The only active composer within that age range in 2012 was Ennio Morricone, who was 84 and working on two Italian TV films that year. Randy Newman was in that senior citizen age bracket as well, turning 67 in 2012. Others, including Thomas Newman, Alexandre Desplat, and Hans Zimmer, were in their early to mid-50s. Another reason John Williams had to celebrate 2012 was marking 40 years of working with Steven Spielberg. Ever since their tentative but ultimately lucrative beginnings with the Sugarland Express back in 1972, this has been the greatest filmmaking collaboration in history. So when the time came to discuss the music for Lincoln, I'm sure the conversation Spielberg and Williams had about the score revolved around Daniel Day-Lewis's performance. The speeches he delivers have such mesmerizing strength and poise, and you just don't want to accent them with music. Therefore, only two of Day-Lewis's big speeches in the movie feature music, and then in one other big scene with Lincoln and his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln. The first time I saw Lincoln, I went because, obviously, I wanted to hear John Williams' score. 
But I was also drawn in by the possibility of another fantastic performance by Day-Lewis, who has always been the embodiment of method acting. He becomes his characters, even living as them away from the set. From the first moment we see him on screen talking to Union soldiers to the moment he gives his malice toward none speech at the end, I was mesmerized. I had to see it again a week later to pay attention to the music that I know I had missed the first time. Not only is there a great restraint in Williams' score to Lincoln, there is an understated nobility to it. A lot of that comes from the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, performing on their second film score, 13 years after recording the music for Fantasia 2000. Williams had conducted numerous concerts with the Chicago Symphony and said the orchestra was chosen as a nod to Lincoln's home state. In creating the thematic material, Williams gives the president a gentle melody that accompanies the understated performance of the actor playing him. We first hear that theme around halfway through the film in a very famous scene in which Lincoln talks about the mathematician Euclid and his statement about equality, saying, things which are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. And taking it all in is a fresh-faced Adam Driver, three years removed from graduating from Juilliard and about three years away from becoming a major Hollywood movie star. The music echoes the quiet strength and almost unnoticeable fragility that Lincoln shows in this pivotal scene as he decides to pursue passing the 13th Amendment instead of negotiating peace with the Confederacy. There's absolutely no other way to underscore Lincoln rising from his chair after the incredible monologue, putting on the famous stovepipe hat and leaving the telegraph office, than playing his theme on the trumpet. That trumpet is played by the Chicago Symphony's Chris Martin. For a moment, I automatically thought that Tim Morrison, Williams' go-to guy for trumpet solos, had been called in for performing duties. The music I played comes on the soundtrack CD in the first track called The People's House, and it's the first of many wrongly named tracks on the album. The music on this track, at least what appears in the film, has nothing really to do with the White House, which is also called The People's House. 
My favorite theme in the film belongs, I think, to the fight to pass the 13th Amendment and the struggle to end slavery. It could really be just an overall theme for the film itself, and it plays either on a piano or on woodwinds. It never gets a chance to become heroic, even after the amendment is passed, which is appropriate as it also doubles as an eulogy for those killed in the Civil War. We first hear this theme as a black soldier, played by David Oyelowo, recites part of the Gettysburg Address to the President. I'll play the theme now, and then we'll analyze it after. As I listened to this theme played on the piano, it felt like this piece of music was not by John Williams, but instead adapted from a Negro spiritual written in the 1860s. It has that kind of melodic structure that almost begs for a lyric to accompany it, a song of hope sung by slaves working in the fields or black soldiers fighting in the war. Williams has said that he researched the music of the 1860s, drawing inspiration from the time period, and this melody reflects that research more than any other theme in the film. According to the website negrospirituals.com, some of these songs fell into the slow, sustained, long-phrase melody category, meaning the melody seems to extend uninterrupted from one line of the song to the next. Here's an example of that in the song I'm Troubled in Mind. You'll hear how the phrase of the melody extends about four measures. Let's listen to a longer performance of this theme that John Williams wrote, near the end of the sequence when the House of Representatives is voting on the 13th Amendment. Because it's important to hear all the yay votes and nay votes, the music is understated, playing the main theme on clarinet. Now, like I'm Troubled in Mind, Williams' main theme in the film Lincoln is a long line melody, spanning four measures before a variation of it follows for four more measures. I love this upcoming moment in the film when Lincoln is in the White House reading to his son while the roll call continues to be read. 
On the soundtrack album, this theme also can be found in the queue entitled Equality Under the Law. The music for the final 90 seconds of the track belongs to the big speech by Congressman Thaddeus Stevens, played by Tommy Lee Jones. In the scene, Stevens tries to tap dance around saying that blacks are equal to white people, even though we'll find out later that he pretty much does hold that to be true. But as a politician, he has to hold back on his true beliefs while still maintaining his conviction that the amendment's true purpose is to make all people, white or black, quote, entitled to equality before the law, end quote, not under the law, as the CD track title says. The big speech gets some nice music, though not really related to any other themes used in the film. Stevens' speech gets a great ovation at the end, and he leaves the house floor with a great triumphant swell in the orchestra. One more important theme in the film belongs to the Lincoln family, and it gets its due in a scene when Abe and Mary Todd Lincoln talk about their dead son. This scene is filmed mostly in silhouette as the two relive the day their son died while they were hosting a White House function. Starting the cue with the fiddles makes the Lincolns feel a bit ordinary before the piano takes over with a very melancholy theme to match the mood of the scene.
there's a little bit of musical energy pumped into three scenes in the film. Two of them concern the president's covert attempts to persuade some Democrats to vote for the amendment and feature the great actors James Spader, Tim Blake Nelson, and John Hawks. The scenes are quite comical as many of the Democrats threaten violence and these covert agents go to great lengths to reach these, quote, lame duck Democrats. To fit the music of the time, Williams heavily employs the string section of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, especially the fiddle players, to carry the music for the first scene, a montage of interesting ploys to get six Democrats on their side. There's a scene in which a fiddle player performs on screen, and Williams does a remarkable job of closely matching the fiddler's performance with his own score. This is an amazing moment of the source music and the underscore melding together seamlessly. You know, it had to take a lot of time to write music to sync with the on-screen fiddler. The second scene involving securing Democratic votes uses music from another track on the album called The Race to the House. This cue uses dueling banjos to create a comedic flavor as James Spader's character prevents a congressman from shooting him.
Here's a cool portion of the cue featuring a musician playing spoons, which was popular in the 1860s. This entire track features music not originally written by John Williams, which might explain why it sounds so out of place when you listen to it. It includes snippets from four songs created during the Civil War called They Swung John Brown to a Sour Apple Tree, Three Forks from Hell, Last of Sizemore, and Republican Spirit. Jim Taylor did an arrangement of these pieces of music and performed them for Lincoln. I would imagine these Civil War era songs were either on the temp track Spielberg used in the first edits of the film, because I've read articles with John Williams saying that he rarely picks pre-existing music to play in the film, that the director often plans for these bits to be played for various reasons. So the actual race to the house in the movie involves James Spader running from the Capitol building to the White House to deliver a message to Lincoln in the middle of the vote. The first 30 seconds of The Race to the House on the album is used for this scene, as well as some music from Getting Out the Vote. Here's that opening 30 seconds featuring the fiddle from They Swung John Brown to a Sour Apple Tree. Though the soundtrack doesn't give accurate titles for all of its tracks, it does give us just about all of the music heard in the film. That includes the final 11 minutes of the movie, starting with the moment Lincoln is pronounced dead after being shot at Forge Theater, through his second inauguration speech, all the way through the end credits. Every note heard in the film is heard in the track, The Peterson House and Finale. Now, a nifty edit takes us into that inauguration speech.
And at this point, Lincoln makes his famous malice toward none statement. John Williams recognizes that with some stately music. The music continues with reprises of all the themes in the film, starting with Lincoln's theme. I'd like to go back a bit to talk about the music for the scene in which Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrenders at the Appomattox Courthouse. The music takes an interesting turn as the movie shifts to the moment Confederate General Robert E. Lee leaves the courthouse. Angelic voices, namely the Chicago Symphony Chorus, sing a wordless melody as Lee mounts his horse.
Those strings at the end as Lee leaves on his horse don't give us the kind of optimism we might expect to hear in the music. I mean, the war is over and the North is won. But perhaps Williams is foreshadowing that things aren't going to get better after this moment. Lincoln is a score that might not grab you on the first listen, or maybe even the second one. But over time, it pulls you in, and it certainly did that for me. Williams' research into the music of the time and flavoring the score with those details really helps it. That's one reason why this score was nominated by critics as one of the best of 2012, and why it was nominated for many peer awards. In January 2013, Williams won Best Score at the Critics' Choice Awards, his only major victory for Lincoln. He was nominated for the Golden Globe and the Oscar, losing both to Michael Dana for his work on Life of Pi. And despite the issues with wrong names on track titles, the Recording Academy nominated Williams for the Grammy for Best Soundtrack Album, which lost to Thomas Newman's Skyfall. Despite the preconceived notions that a movie about a president would not earn money, Lincoln turned out to be one of Steven Spielberg's most successful non-action films. It earned $182 million in the United States, and about half that elsewhere in the world. Daniel Day-Lewis's performance drew a lot of praise, and that performance carried Day-Lewis to a record third Academy Award for acting in a leading role. That made him the first actor to win an Oscar for a Spielberg film, after 11 previous nominations, including the two for Tommy Lee Jones and Sally Field that year. And Spielberg wasn't left out either, getting a directing nomination as well as one for Best Picture as one of its producers. Out of the 12 Oscar nominations, Lincoln only won two, though, for Day-Lewis and for the production design. After he completed his work on Lincoln, John Williams got to celebrate his birthday in August with his friends at the 75th annual Tanglewood Concert. Yo-Yo Ma was there, as well as several other music luminaries that have performed with Williams. And speaking of Boston, Williams was commissioned to put together a piece of music to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Fenway Park, the home of the Boston Red Sox. It's not very long, just a little more than three minutes, but it had to be a fun assignment for Williams to write music again for a place, just as he did a few years back for the Walt Disney Concert Hall. John Williams was on hand to conduct the debut performance for brass, horns, and percussion at Fenway Park on April 20th, 2012, and if anyone listening to this was there to hear the performance, you were very lucky. Mm-hmm. 
About three months later, another John Williams composition made its debut. It was called Rounds, and it featured just one guitar, which I believe marks the first time Williams has written a piece for just one instrument. Though he had worked with several great guitar players over the years, he didn't call on them to perform this piece in June 2012. Instead, it was Spaniard Pablo Sainz Viegas, who was just two weeks shy of his 35th birthday when he performed the six-minute piece. You can find the full performance by Viegas on YouTube. The passion he puts into the performance really helps sell the composition. So with two non-film compositions and an Oscar-nominated film score out of the way, Williams was ready to face 2013 with no Steven Spielberg films on the immediate horizon. Now just as Lincoln was making its way into theaters, the big news at the end of 2012 was the sale of Lucasfilm to Disney including all rights for Disney to do whatever they wanted with Star Wars. Immediately, there was an announcement that more Star Wars movies would be made, and John Williams fans got really excited that John Williams would be returning to the galaxy far, far away. But that wouldn't come for a couple more years. In the meantime, there was a much smaller film than Star Wars on the docket, and it was an adaptation of the best-selling book about a German girl and her family during World War II called The Book Thief. I'm going to be joined by David Kay again for some of his insight into this score. And we'll have a special guest joining us as well. Director Brian Percival will talk about working with John Williams and reliving some of his favorite moments in the score. You don't want to miss it. We're going to get some great insights that we haven't had yet on this show. So that's going to do it for this episode. You know how to reach me through email at jeffswim at aol.com. And it's great getting emails from all the listeners as we continue to debate the finer points of John Williams' music. Keep them coming. Until then, everybody, the baton is down.